You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com This is City World Radio's Intelligent Talk, and I'm interviewing F. Lee Bailey, the famous trial lawyer. And Mr. Bailey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I just wanted to briefly, if I could, just review your background. And I believe you went to Harvard and you left to join the Marines and you graduated from BU Law School where you were a valedictorian, sir? Is All that... of that is correct. And then I just wanted, um, if I could, just discuss some of your very important cases. Maybe if I could just start with the Sam Shepard case. As I understand it, that was the yes. basis for the, the TV show, The Fugitive, and the movie, of course. And um, I understand that you got an appeal from the first trial, and I think as a result of that case and what you did, the concept of sequestering juries was sort of built upon your work. Is, is, that, is that your understanding? No, it isn't true, but for the state of Ohio, it probably is. The state of Ohio ran very sloppy jury selection proceedings in highly publicized cases. As a result of the Supreme Court judgment in this case, they were first to uh, forced to revise their procedures and become much more cautious. But in Massachusetts, for instance, juries were already routinely locked up in murder cases. I see. And you were able to get that trial, um, a new trial. The, the original lawyer for Mr. Shepard died. You got an appeal in federal court. You had a new trial. And the issue was it just wasn't a fair trial. Is, is that and the bloodstains weren't accounted for and things like that. Is, that. is that correct? Well, the federal judge's opinion, uh, Chief Judge Carl Weinman of Dayton, who was uh, a lion of a man, we were very fortunate to get him said in very blunt terms, I find five federal constitutional violations in this record, and if I kept looking, I would find more. And this case, at best, was a mockery of justice, so it was something more than a technical error. Are, are you convinced to this day that Sam Shepard was innocent then? I have no doubt of it, and in, indeed the evidence makes it pretty clear that he must have been and the state of Ohio was terrified over that prospect. Lots of guilty consciences out there. A detective uh, from the Cleveland police went so far as to say to me, if Sam Shepard is innocent, I don't want to know it. Because they didn't want to admit they made a mistake, Mr. Bailey? Was that it? Well, that, that's the way I would read it. What what was the strongest source that you would make you would make you say that Mr. Shepard was innocent? What, does anything stand out as the most key piece of evidence? Well, the evidence taken together circumstantially suggested that Marilyn was killed by a left-handed woman or a left-handed young boy. Bear in mind, none of this evidence was available to Sam Shepard until after the trial. Okay, they blocked him from getting at any of it. But uh, those things aside, Sam Shepard had a fractured cervical vertebrae. People who fake injuries trying to cover up their own complicity will not take a shot at their own cervical 
vertebrae because the risk is very high that the wound would become fatal. I see. Out of control. He also had two broken teeth. I've never heard of, and I challenge any colleague to say that he's heard of someone trying to cover up uh, his own complicity in a criminal case by breaking his teeth. It just doesn't happen. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, thank you. Those are excellent points, Mr. Bailey. Um, if I could just go on to another case, you became an expert in um, polygraphs, I believe. In the was it the Keller uh, Polygraph Institute of Chicago and the George Edgar Lee case? Keeler. Keeler. Yes. Is, yes, um, I did, and that was the uh, principal reason I got invited into the Shepherd case, and frankly, many other cases down the road. Is it your opinion that uh, those those tests are accurate or not, Mr. Bailey? Oh, it is so far established that they are highly accurate, if you have a good examiner, um, that it's beyond the pale. I mean, the government is doing 150,000 polygraph tests a year. That would be hard to explain if it were a Ouija board. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, well, it's good to have your opinion on that. I also want to discuss, if I could, uh, obviously I want to get to your, the OJ case and others, but the My Lai Massacre case in 1968. You defended Captain Medina, and you subsequently gave him a job in a helicopter company, I believe you had a stake in, and it was about uh, civilian deaths in Vietnam. I think 300 to 400 civilians were, were killed. Is, is that right, Mr. Bailey? I don't think so. Uh, the charge against Medina was 100 civilians not named plus two specific civilians who were identified. But the Army really didn't have um, a very good insight into this. Bear in mind, the problem is that the massacre, uh, which it certainly was, occurred in 1967. It was not discovered until 1969 because, frankly, the authorities had covered it up. Okay. Such an embarrassment. And therefore, um, the case itself didn't go to trial till 1971. So I got to be old uh, pretty quick and needless to say, became difficult to reconstruct because the authorities had gone to pretty elaborate lengths to uh, uh, execute the cover-up. Did it remind you a bit when the Blackwater people were accused of that shooting in Iraq 10 or 15 years ago and the government put them on trial? Did that remind you at all? Well, no, because um, what happened here was brutal. It was disgusting against everything that America could possibly stand for. Uh, the execution of women elderly children and babies is not anywhere in any book, no matter what the reason. So there's no um, smooth talking our way out of responsibility for this one. The problem is that <clears throat> uh, this was a very bitter war where a life was unfortunately quite cheap and <clears throat> A lot of people didn't think that sacrificing the lives of gooks, which is what the Vietnamese were called, 
was really so reprehensible and they paid little mind to it. And to me, that's a very sad thing because in my view, it rubbed luster off of the United States of America. So is it your view, Mr. Bailey, that, that, that the massacre did occur then? Just Medina was not part of it? There's no question what it occurred. It was on the cover of Life magazine. So it occurred, but Medina was not responsible for it. Medina was not there. The whole issue with the trial was, should the commander be held responsible for what his troops do when he's not there and without his having ordered okay. such conduct? That's what we had a trial about. Why do you think the government was so intent upon putting him on trial if he was not there? Did you have any theories as to that? Well, the government concluded that if Callie, who was actually on the scene, did a lot of the shooting, were left as the only one prosecuted, there would be a very bad odor to that. I see. And and I think that's a fair statement. And uh, <clears throat> so they had to bring someone to trial at a higher level. I see. They brought Medina to trial reluctantly, frankly, because he was one of the best officers they ever had. I see. But, okay. uh, they, they couldn't cut it off at Cali's level. They didn't feel. And so Medina was named as well as his superior, Colonel Henderson. Um, they didn't seriously think Henderson had any real responsibility except not learning of the massacre before it was over and not putting a stop to it in time on those two counts. Um, he should have had to take responsibility. But it was, on the one hand, the ugliest trial in which I've ever been obliged to participate. And you really had to hold your nose through much of the evidence. On the other hand, it was the best tried case in terms of following the rules of any case in which I've ever participated. So, like many things in life, there are some um, yeses and some noes. Okay. Well, that's fascinating, Mr. Bailey. Um, if I could just turn you to the Patty Hearst case. Obviously, Patty Hearst yep. was a famous publishing heiress who got involved. She was kidnapped by the SLA, Symbolese Liberation Army. She was involved, I believe, in a bank robbery where some a customer was killed, and she was put on trial for murder. Is that correct? No. Uh, you're partially correct. There were two bank robberies involved, one in San Francisco, one in Sacramento. The... Um, <clears throat> The one in San Francisco is the one you read about. It's the one for which she stood trial. Okay. The one in Sacramento was the one where a woman was indeed killed, and that woman was pregnant. And the double-barreled shotgun that killed her killed her fetus as well. That case never went to trial as to Patty. Patty's boyfriend, uh, Stephen Solia, who, like Patty, was in fact in the getaway truck, was tried for it and acquitted because the identification that the government offered up was plainly not credible. 
And so he walked. The night I was hired by Randy Hearst, he said, I have only one thing I need you to do. If she ever gets indicted and tried on the on the uh, Sacramento case, we'll never see her again. You have to win that case somehow or stave it off or compromise it or something. But that's why I'm hiring you to to handle that case. And we succeeded in that respect. However, we uh, could not tell anyone that we had succeeded or what we had accomplished until Patty herself decided to write a book about it. I see. And then it became fair game. Up until then, it was all within the attorney-client privilege, but her book admits that she engaged in felony murder. Uh, Anybody who drives a getaway car in a robbery is as liable as the uh, person who pulls the trigger. And uh, uh, I've read the book, of course, and I can agree with part of it. I still believe she was not a criminal, but a victim of kidnapping. But um, that case would be controversial for many years, unfortunately. And the Achilles heel in the case was the public knew almost nothing about brainwashing. Um, Those of us who served in the Korean War, particularly those who were pilots, knew it well because every one of our pilots that got shot down wound up confessing to germ warfare on some public media. And so the uh, Army and the Navy were both, or the Navy and the Marine Corps, we were the ones getting shot down in in Korea, but the, some uh, Air Force as well. They were very concerned about what to do with all of this because we treated the uh, uh, <clears throat> broadcast made by civilians as a court-martial offense. And yet we were court-martialing people who didn't have the physical ability to resist the demands of the uh, North Koreans, in truth, the Chinese. And so we were simply told, all right, if you get shot down, you will wind up confessing. Everybody does. Hold off as long as you can so that we can let the world know that you're being tortured. That's the best we can do in this situation. And so um, that's what we did. When I took on the um, Patty Hearst case, most people had no in- inkling of what brainwashing really was. But um, they learned belatedly that it was a real phenomenon, sometimes called the Stockholm Syndrome, and uh, that there was no real defense to it because the persuasion ex- exercised by the enemy was um, very, very effective. And no one that we found could stand up to it effectively. So your view is that she should never have been, it should never have been charges brought against her. Is that, is that correct? Yes, and I, there was uh, some sympathy for that in various circles. The political argument was, 
well, as rich as she is, if we don't charge her with murder, um, school's out, everybody can commit a murder here and there, and they won't get punished for it. And that was an unfortunate thing to hear. I suppose there's a degree of reality infused in that. And uh, <clears throat> so off we went and tried the case. Got it. And um, and obviously you were able to, you were you considered that one of your successes, is that despite what you wrote in her book, is that correct? I certainly do because, uh, I, first of all, I didn't write anything in any book about the first case. I might someday, but I haven't so far. I'm sorry, I, I meant what and, she wrote, uh, what, 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 what Patty Hearst wrote in her book. Well, first of all, Patty didn't write her book, and you have to take a lot of it with a grain of salt. Okay. Um, she's on the defensive for a whole number of reasons and uh, pretty unhappy with everybody, despite what I think we did for her was nothing short of heroic just by keeping her out of jail under these circumstances, except for the bank robbery. We knew we couldn't win all those cases, and indeed we didn't. But um, she got what lawyers like to call a very good result under the circumstances, and we got hammered for it for years. That's part of the game. You can't always explain why what looks like a loser is really a winner, but uh, that's life. That's part of the of the risk of engaging in criminal law as a profession. Absolutely. Well, if I could just turn now to the um, Simpson case, Mr. Bailey, which obviously was an undoubted success on your part, you were brought into that case by Robert Shapiro. Is that correct, who you knew? Yes. And um, obviously, I mean, well, first I want to get into, you, you, I know you have a theory as to what actually happened, but I just want to discuss probably the most famous aspects of that case was your cross-examination of Mark Furman, where you asked him if he had ever said the famous N-word, the N-I-G-G-E-R, and Furman denied that he had, and of course it came out that he had used it many times, supposedly in the midst of writing a book, I believe, and he was recorded to that extent. Did you know, Mr. Bailey, when you asked him that question, if he had used the N-word? Was that just, how did you come up with that line of questioning, if I could ask. I knew it. I was well satisfied that it was true. However, during the trial, we got handed a bonus because um, my chief investigator, and I had uh, have often said, if your investigator is good enough, most any lawyer will do. <laughs> uh, my chief investigator uh, heard that there were some tapes that had been made when Furman was helping a young writer, uh, partly to be sure to get in her pants, uh, uh, to put together a book on the life of women in the LAPD, okay, which was thought to be quite onerous, and, and I dare say was. And <clears throat> we already had at least 12 witnesses one of whom was a judge, who were prepared to say that Furman used that word all the time, that he used it viciously. So I didn't ask the question about him using the word without a very solid foundation. However, that certainly would be totally questionable and challenged by the other side unless you have Furman 
in his own words, and therefore the tapes were invaluable. I had no idea they existed when I cross-examined him. Judge Ito interrupted the cross-examination, insisting that I prove that these people existed, whom I claimed would uh, um, <clears throat> say that Furman used the word with regularity. And so the cross-examination was never finished. When the tapes came up, Furman took the Fifth Amendment as to everything, including, did you plant that glove? And uh, <clears throat> uh, the cross-examination never finished either. But, of course, he was finished, done in, out of the police department. Now, good old America, nonetheless, made a bit of a, uh, a hero out of him. And uh, that is one of the great shames of the Patty Hearst case. But it certainly happened. And he has lived for a fellow that's supposedly ostracized. He has lived a pretty good life right along the road. It's, it's amazing that he would be dumb enough to lie in open court under oath when he knew those tapes existed. I guess he just never thought you would get your hands no, on them. No, he thought we'd never find them. Indeed, he called the owner of the tapes and asked her to uh, bury them. Really? Okay. Oh, yes. Interesting. Um, well, so, Mr. Bear... testimony. Yes, sir? I said it's in her testimony. Okay. As I understand, Mr. Bailey, you have a certain theory of the O.J. case that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that Faye Resnick was the intended target and it was about a drug situation. Is that correct? Yeah, I think there's very little question about it. And indeed, although they haven't had much to say lately, that's what the FBI concluded. Could you just tell me briefly, sir, what, could you just elaborate yeah, on Faye that? Faye Resnick was a poacher who had been living with uh, Nicole Simpson Brown or Brown Simpson um, for some time. Okay. And they like like to live with other people because the rent terms usually convenient. <laughs> um, <clears throat> she was. Uh, I won't get into a lot of the description that would apply, but she was not the kind of gal you wanted to have hanging around your house. Okay. And indeed, she was a heavy cocaine user had run up substantial bills um, in the cocaine industry. If they can't collect, then uh, <clears throat> they have other means. One of the things they cannot do is bring a lawsuit to collect. And <clears throat> our belief is that we have an eyewitness who never got a chance to testify but was very much there who saw the probable assassins arguing with Nicole on the street. And <clears throat> we are quite sure that the assassins, who are not the brightest bulbs in the chandelier, certainly not in this case, uh, mistook Cole or Faye Resnick. They had no way of knowing that Faye Resnick had moved to... Um, <clears throat> a dry-out place that same, no, the day before all this happened. And <clears throat> so the killer, in, in my view, and in the 
a view of many who are well informed about the case um, was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they mistook her for Nicole, and away she went. So it was most unfortunate coincidence, but she paid for it very heavily. And Mr. Bailey, this witness that saw the killing, could you could you elaborate on who that is or where that person is now? Or? Yes, is it a contractor uh, who recognized the truck involved because he had one just like it? And uh, <clears throat> his name was Tom Lang. By coincidence, that is the same name that was detective, was had right? by the... Uh, chief detective on the case, the difference being the detective spelled it with an E on the end, and Tom Lang did not. Now, the um, let me catch up here a minute. Okay. Tom Lang came home at 10 o'clock on the night of the murder. Okay. He took his dog out for a walk, as he almost always did. Tom Lang saw Nicole standing next to the sidewalk and she appeared to be arguing heatedly with someone. Okay. And he described them uh, all as maybe dark-skinned, but not black people. He became concerned that there was going to be some kind of violence just from the general tone of things. And he therefore made a turn. He was uh, about to cross Dorothy Street and go past Bundy Street, where Nicole's house was located, but he became concerned and made a turn that uh, um, came away from the scene. The next day, he came home and discovered that from the newspapers, Nicole had been murdered along with her friend Ron Goldman. He therefore wrote a letter, handwritten letter, and sent a copy of it to both the police and to Bob Shapiro, who was then lead defense counsel. Okay. So he declared himself right at the outset. He was not a newcomer, like so many witnesses turned out to be. And that, in the world of... uh, of super sleuthing that I am in is a very important measuring stick. When did the guy come forward and tell this story? He also went to see his lawyer, who was at a local, uh, I think it was Sinesta Hotel. Um, The lawyer owned it, and Tom Lang did work for him. And he told him about it, and the lawyer said, you know, you're going to get called upon to testify in this case, and we better get down with some precision 
just what you remember because everybody's going to be trying to get you to remember something different. And he said, uh, uh, <clears throat> let's record what you have to say. Okay. And so they did. And that recording uh, was preserved by the lawyer, authenticated in a number of and <clears throat> we got a look at it and a copy of it soon thereafter, as did both sides. The police did not wish to interview Tom Lane because his testimony made it very plain that whoever killed Nicole and uh, Ron Goldman it was not uh, O.J. And he would have testified. I saw three men. One had the door open on the passenger side of an F-350 truck. And um, um, let's see. The driver was still in the seat and standing right outside uh, Nicole's gate a short distance away, about 50 feet from where the truck was parked, was a, a man who was in what is described as a very menacing posture. Mr. Bailey, I'm sorry, could I just enter for one second? We're just going to pause for, for a quick break.
Welcome back to Intelligent Talk, City World Radio's interview with F. Lee Bailey. You were describing um, um, that man who... Now, Tom Lang was to be our key witness. Okay. However, the best laid plans of mice and men. Judge Edo had originally started with 24 jurors. Judge Edo was a former prosecutor who was married to the highest-ranking woman cop in the LAPD. Right. And Judge Ito's heart was obviously not the defense. Okay. In his defense, he offered to step down, and Shapiro declined the offer. Why did he do that, Mr. Bailey? And when I said, Bob, um, why the hell did you turn down that offer. This guy is going to have pillow talk every night with the LAPD, and that can't be good for us. Oh, said Shapiro, Ito loves me. Well, he didn't love him for long because within a week, Shapiro is in open court. He didn't like one of Ito's rulings, and he called him disingenuous. I'm not sure Bob knew what the word means, but it's very plain. That it means you're a liar. <laughs> right. Normally, one doesn't do that with with judges without getting in very big trouble. But uh, Bob did it here, and Judge Ito was not friendly to the uh, defense for the rest of the time. And the worst thing that he did from our perspective was that he started taking off jurors for little or no reason. Now, by the time this happened, it was apparent to most people that the case was beyond repair. Okay. Uh, the Furman tapes had surfaced. Furman had taken the fifth. The whole case against O.J. Simpson was just one issue, a glove. This was a case about a glove. If O.J. dropped the glove at his house, he might have been guilty of something. If somebody else dropped it there, he obviously wasn't guilty of anything. If it doesn't and fit, you must acquit. It quit. could have been tried in a month or two. But when it dragged on and on, by August, Ito started knocking off jurors. We got down to 14 jurors. One of them was 73. The other was 39 and had chest pains. In California, if you get down to 11 jurors, either side can ask for a mistrial and get it. Okay. We had a lot of evidence to put on, primarily the testimony of Tom Lang, who would have been a killer, because my view of the case, since I was in charge of its preparation, was that on dealing with a celebrity, you not only have to get a reasonable doubt, you have to show the public he didn't do it. Okay. Or he'll never have a life after the trial. Uh, Marsha Clark said, absolutely not. If we get down to 11, I want a mistrial. Well, I understood that because she knew her case was a joke at that point, And she was going to lose it. The only thing that we could do, and Johnny Cochran and I had the only heated discussion of the entire trial over whether to call Tom Lang or whether it was so likely that that would drag out the trial until we got down to 11 jurors, 
uh, and nine months would have been wasted. And Johnny finally said, I just can't afford to try this case again. Uh, you say we've got it won. Most people say we've got it won. I cannot chance on a mistrial. So we left out Tom Lang, the witness, Bernard Udowitz, the best homicide forensic psychiatrist in the country who said O.J. didn't kill anybody. The head of the battered women's union who said, despite the PR, O.J. is not a batterer. That's not his nation. Um, and, and also Dr. Kerry Mullis, who had gotten a Nobel Prize for devising a means to take a spot of blood, a tiny spot, a speck, and clone it until it became large enough to test it for DNA. He was prepared to testify that all of this procedure that had been applied by the uh, Los Angeles police was defective and none of the evidence should have been received. And he was the world leading authority on what's called PCR or polymerase chain reaction. So, Mr. Bailey... So most people never, never got to see the light of day. Then the civil case ensued, which was a kangaroo trial if ever there was one, and a lot of people who were disappointed by the verdict in the criminal case latched onto that and said, therefore, you see, we know he did it. Okay. Um, so, Mr. Bailey, beyond what you've discussed now, do you also think Furman did plant blood? Is that a possibility as well? In the car, for example, and other places that OJ... I think he worked? wiped it in the car, yes, and I think he planted the glove. Indeed, when asked about that, he took the Fifth Amendment. He tried to take a polygraph test, and on the question, did you plant the glove, he failed dramatically. And do you think he did that just because kind of because hatred because O.J. was black with the white? Well, what do you think? The, do you no, any... not at all. Furman was in the case. It was the biggest case he'd ever been near. Furman liked credit. He liked the big arrests. Um, he liked publicity. Okay. And an hour after he's in the case, he gets a call saying, this is too big for you, Furman. We're sending in the A-team from Parker Center, which is the downtown office of robbery homicide in Los Angeles. His only motive was to stay in the case. He wasn't trying to frame O.J. He had no idea where O.J. was or whether he might have a complete, perfect alibi. I see. But so was, by dropping a glove over there and then pretending to find it, he became a witness in the case. It's really all they had in the case. And as he said on tape one time to his girlfriend, the writer, she said, aren't they going to throw you out now that it's been shown that you hate And he said, no, they can't do that. This is a case about a glove. I am the glove. Without me, they can't get it in evidence. Without the glove, the case goes bye-bye. That's odd that he would have known that before they ever tested the blood on the glove. That was his statement in July of 94. That's fascinating, uh, Mr. Bailey. Have you subsequently talked to O.J.? You've been had some contact with him in the, in the years since the trial. Is that right? I had dinner with him the other night. The, uh, up in Maine? No. Uh... Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were based in Maine. Are you not in Maine now? I am based in Maine. Where I had dinner with him is nobody. Oh, business. okay. I told you. Are you asking if I'd seen him yes. talk with him? I said I had dinner with him the other night. I see. And is he is he doing well in your in your opinion? He seems to be. 
Okay. Just just as a general question, Mr. Bailey, because you obviously are very insightful on the criminal justice system. I believe it's something like in federal, state, and local jail, something like 2.3 million people in jail in the country. It's amongst the highest incarceration rate in the world. A lot of that is drug issues. Do you think the U.S. justice system is just simply too harsh and has too many people in jail? Well, I think it's being silly. They don't remember prohibition. They created uh, huge syndicates of criminals. They created all kinds of people who were notorious drunks and smashing up their cars by trying to control uh, the distribution of something the public was determined to have. Okay. And recreational drugs are in the same boat. You cannot win a war of prohibition. All you accomplish is driving the price up, the street price. So until the federal government, which is the main offender, most of the states have backed off now. They're looking more for treatment than they are for prohibition. Uh, The federal government is still 10 years behind the thinking of the free world. And although it doesn't enforce marijuana laws, it keeps them on the books to frighten people, which is, I think, a sad commentary in America. But America has proven to have the attention span of a four-year-old and to hope that they would draw some object lesson from alcohol prohibition in the late 20s and early 30s is just too much, I'm afraid. Does it also concern you, Mr. Bailey, that less and less cases are going to trial, that Prosecutors load up with charges and people get so afraid they settle before going to trial. Is that of concern, that that increasing trend, too? Well, they plead guilty. Uh, The fact is most people get arrested with evidence that is impossible to refute, either sell to a detective or a Confederate turns against them. But these are not tribal cases, so they plead Some people who do have tribal cases, who might have been bystanders but not involved in the transaction and got swept up in the net, are pleading because the penalties are so horrendous that the lawyers say, look, there's no such thing as a guaranteed win. If you get hooked on this thing, it's going to be terrible. So I just want to give you that opportunity, and I acknowledge the fact that you probably are not legally guilty. Are there countries which you think have better criminal justice systems in the United States? Any that come to mind? In yes, I, I would think uh, a fair number. Um, there are several measuring sticks. Number one, how harshly do they treat people for drug offenses when there's really little point to it? And the drug offenders, in many cases, unless they're sellers and not criminals, uh, most of Europe does better than we do. How many people do they have in jail as a percentage of the population? All of Europe does better than we do. Um, How many keep capital punishment on the books? None of Europe, so far as I know. Uh, Might be a Scandinavian country there that has it theoretically, but no one's been executed there for 50 or 100 years. So we love to run around saying we got the best system in the world. Um, it certainly has some value to it, but we have not done much to improve it, even though we learn year after year we're keeping the wrong people in jail for crimes they didn't commit, which I think is nothing to be proud of. 
Can you think of one or two things we should do to make it better besides reducing the drug sentences? The most sweeping change I would make is to adopt all the safeguards of the military system. Uh, the military cannot afford to uh, <clears throat> have people convicted whom the troops know to be innocent because the adverse effect on morale is a killer and the military lives on morale. So the military has set up a system whereby innocent people very seldom get dragged into the legal system. Um, they are singled out and filtered out before that ever happens, which is a very good thing. In addition, military jurors are almost always college graduates. Um, they are very difficult to fool, and most lawyers who have any sense won't try. <clears throat> and if there is a mistake made in a military case, the commander-in-chief who convened the court-martial to begin with has the power to reverse it and throw it out. Paramount is the need to make sure that the men and women in the armed forces are not going to have to worry about putting in many, many years of faithful service and then being hammered for a crime they didn't commit. And that's enough to frighten anyone in any society and I think be worth a substantial effort to avoid. Unfortunately, uh, America doesn't see it that way. Uh, Mr. Bailey, do you see any, um, as an observer and an observer of politics, and obviously a well-schooled in the law, do you see any parallels between what's happening with the Trump administration and the allegations of collusion with Russia with, say, what Nixon was telling the North Vietnamese supposedly to, uh, sorry, the South Vietnamese to hold out in 68 and the cooperation with Russia? Do you have any just opinion on what Mueller is doing and um, that prosecution? Well, um, privately, I think it's likely that um, Mr. Trump is going to get his comeuppance from Bob Mueller. He certainly has been unwise in his attacks on the justice system generally, on the, <clears throat> um, the military he's often on, uh, the media he has declared full-scale war on. He's got a lot of people on his side. I don't happen to think that, but it's a free country. And I think that Mr. Mueller, at the end of the day, and it could go a different direction, but I think that Mr. Mueller is apt to be Mr. Trump's nemesis. Interesting. And just as a, on a personal level, um, Mr. Bailey, I know you were a pilot. You had a Learjet, I believe, in the 70s, and you were an active... Yep. Do, you, do you still fly? Do you still go out in Maine and take planes around? I or? still fly, but I've got acquired the wisdom to do it in other people's airplanes. <laughs> I think I told you that we have a... My family had a house in North Haven, an island off Rockland, so I spent yep. a, a bit of time flying around, and it is so beautiful, and I believe you, you enjoy sailing as well. Um, well, I mean, sailing is fun. Flying is to get from here to there, I wouldn't consider it uh, much of a lark anymore. But it was fun when I was a kid, and 
flying helicopters is so fun. I'll do that recreationally anytime I get a chance. You had an interest in a helicopter company, is, but you gave that person from the, the Mila. For 10 years, I made, I made helicopters. Were those like piston engine or turbine engine helicopters? or? No, they were small piston engine ships. You could say bottom of the line. Um, they were what you started out with if you didn't have a lot of money and you wanted to have a helicopter. Like the Robinson 22, something like that? Well, Robinson came along after I did. We all became partners at one time. I liked the Robinson machine, still do. And frankly, if I had my helicopter, I would buy it and not the one that I used to make simply because I think um, Robinson has done a superb job in staying right at the cutting edge of everything going on. So, um, <clears throat> but the Enstrom helicopter that we built was very good for its day. It's still quite viable. The Chinese have bought the company uh, as they have bought so many things. And I think at the end of the day, it will be good for Enstrom of uh, muscle has taken it over. And do you intend to, st I guess you stay in Maine for permanently and you like living there? I have settled here. I have uh, roamed the world and I have not found a better place. Yes, it's, it's certainly beautiful. Well, um, well, thank you so much, Mr. Bailey, for being on Intelligent Talk. It was um, wonderful speaking with you. And um, I wish you a good rest of the day. And thank you so much for coming on. All right. Thank you. Have a good day.